This is the most holy day of the year because Jesus has risen. The resurrection is the very essence of our faith. Both the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our body. Because one depends on the other. Because if Jesus didn't, if he didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is meaningless. The Apostle Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 17, he says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. In other words, if he, didn't raise, if he wasn't raised from the dead, you're not saved. There's no such thing as salvation. And verse 18 says, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Because if there's no resurrection, there's no life. There's just death. You're just dead. And a lot of people believe you live and you die and that's it. It's just you're just done. But the very core of the Christian faith is the fact that life is temporal. Right? I mean, 10 out of 10 people die. <laughs> I don't know anybody that's hanging around here that's living forever. 10 out of 10 people die. Life is temporal. James chapter 4, verse 14, the latter part of that says, For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. However, there's another fact, that there's a part of you that is eternal. We are a triune being. We're made up of three things. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. And that part of you is eternal. We see that in Scripture. We, hear, we read a story in Luke chapter 14 about a rich man and a man named Lazarus that laid at his gate begging for the crumbs off of his table. And the Bible says that Lazarus died and went into the bosom of Abraham. The rich man died and opened his eyes in hell. You have to understand, there's a part of them that was laid in the grave, but there's another part of them that is still conscious, still has a body, still can feel, still can perceive what's going on because the rich man it says that the bosom of Abraham, there was a great gulf fixed between where the bosom of Abraham was and where Lazarus was so that you could see across, but you couldn't cross over to the other side. And the rich man raised up his eyes and said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and touch my parched tongue for I thirst and am in torment in these flames. And of course, Abraham had a conversation with him. Now, let me explain to you real quick what's going on here. The Bible says that Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. So all of the Old Testament saints that died couldn't go directly into heaven because Jesus hadn't come yet. So there was a waiting place called paradise. Remember on the cross, Jesus told the thief, said, this day shall you be with me in paradise. Not in heaven, but in paradise. It was the waiting place. It's also called the bosom of Abraham. And it's where all the Old Testament saints went. And so the rich man, the Lazarus went to this waiting place. But the rich man went to a place that the Bible calls hell. It's a place of torment. The Bible describes it as outer darkness, a place where the flame is not quenched, where the worm does not die. Now, there's a lot of debate about exactly what hell is. It's referred to as the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom is outside of the city of Jerusalem. Many scholars believe that it was the trash dump. When he talks about the worm does not die, it's talking about the maggots and all the dead carcasses of dead dogs and different things that's thrown out there. So it's, he's, he's using, Jesus would use physical, real illustrations to describe spiritual things, you understand. 
So he's describing hell as this horrible place. So it doesn't matter to me what scholars say about it, pro, con, good, bad. It's not good. All right? And people that go there, go there for eternity. You know, I talked about the, uh, the thing that really captures my mind was a relative that I had that I believe died in his sin in 1960. And sometimes I sit down just for my own benefit and do the math. How long, if he is in fact in hell, that he has been there? 365 days a year. I calculate how many hours he's been there, how many minutes he's been there, how many seconds he's been there, and they're still clicking off. And he will never, ever escape that place church this is something serious are you hearing me and there is a part of you that is temporal that will go to the grave but there's a part of you that is eternal we know it on the mount of transfiguration when the disciples were with jesus and they saw elijah and moses meeting with jesus well they've been elijah was actually caught up into the heavens they've been gone for hundreds of years but there's a part of them that is still eternal Still, you can see, they can talk, they can feel, their conscience, their senses are still uh, intact. So we need to understand that the, the resurrection, if it didn't happen, we are wasting our time here today. Because all of your faith is futile. It's meaningless. But if it is real, <laughs> come on, if you're right, you're right for eternity. But if you're wrong, you're wrong for eternity. Now, I don't know, I'm, I know, listen, I'm not preaching to you so much as I'm preaching to the world today because this goes out, people can listen to this sermon all around the world today through podcasts. And so I don't know who I'm talking about, but maybe somebody in here, you need to hear this because one day you're going to stand before God and uh, you want to be ready to be there, amen? Because this poses a question that every single person should answer. What is waiting for me after the resurrection of my body? The three fundamental questions that every, most people ask is, where did I come from? Why am I here? And what's going to happen to me after I die? Now, I read a great article that speaks directly to this, and I, can't, I couldn't find the author, oddly enough. Maybe if I looked a little deeper, but it was on a site called All About Philosophy. And let me just read it because this guy puts it in words better than I can say it myself. It's where do you begin in our search for truth? We begin at the beginning. Perhaps the most fundamental question is, does God exist? It's fundamental because our answer to the other big questions actually hinge on how we answer the significant question. For example, why am I here? The atheist worldview of why I am here. Well, if God doesn't exist, that means that life must have come about through some natural, impersonal, unintelligent, and ultimately purposeless process. That means we're ultimately all purposeless as the very process which brought us into existence. Life just was an accident, and so are you. You can find short-term reasons for living like uh, you're here because your parents wanted to have children, etc. But ultimately, you're just an accident, and so are your parents. Life is one big accident. You serve no purpose. You'll cause no lasting effect. And in the grand scheme of things, your life is ultimately meaningless. 
Without a creator in the beginning, there was nobody around to put you here on purpose, which means you aren't here for a reason. <laughs> it's just that simple. You're just here. That's the atheist worldview. You're just here. And when you die, you're just dead. As far as asking, what am I worth? Without God, we don't actually have any intrinsic value, at least none, uh, not an objective one. Our worth is ultimately subjective. You might think you're worth something, but somebody else might think you're worthless. <laughs> and as long as there's no transcendent assessor to have the final say, no one's ultimately right or wrong. In fact, without God, there's really no such thing as right and wrong. John Dewey, in 1859 to 1952, the famous 20th century atheist, explained it this way. There is no God, and there is no soul. Hence, there are no de deeds that props the traditional religion with dogma and creeds excluded, then immutable truth is also dead and buried. There is no room for fixed natural law or moral absolutes. Philosophers generally agree without an absolute God to make the rules, there is no such thing as a moral absolute. There's only preferences. You don't actually have a right to live. You just live because you prefer not to die. Someone else, on the other hand, might want to kill you, regardless of how you feel about it. And that's, that's true, isn't it? Because a lot of people think like this. There's no value to life. You don't have a right to live. You're just here because you prefer not to die. And I have the right to kill you. I can kill you because it really doesn't matter. All right. Now, I, I, that's not on here. I just said that. Amen. Are you still with me? All right. Hang in there. And who is to say that they are wrong? In the absence of absolute morality, power reigns supreme and the strong survive and the weak get exploited. Thankfully, most governments see it as their duty to uphold what they see as your God-given right to live. And governments also happen to be the strongest institution among men, which means they can enforce morality upon those who don't necessarily agree with the right to live. The founders of the United States of America put it well when they declared, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. Unfortunately, some governments don't share this worldview, and their people suffer terribly for it. I mean, look at Venezuela right now. I mean, you know what's going on in Venezuela? Socialistic, godless country. There are people starving to death. We are sending humanitarian aid down there, and their president is stopping it at the border and won't let it come in, letting his people starve to death. Why? Because they don't believe in God. No, he doesn't, and he's in charge of the government. And, and, and listen, church, we're Americans, and we better wake up because there's a movement in this country right now to take God out of America. 
and institute a socialistic government. Brother, when it's time to vote, you better go to the polls and you better know what you're doing. Amen? I'm not going to go down that path, but just we need to be engaged. Because you sit around and do nothing, don't complain about what happens. So why am I here? The theist worldview, theist just simply means, theo is a Greek word meaning God. We get theology. Ology is the study of theo, God, all right? So theist, people believe in God. Why am I here? Well, if God does exist, that means he is ultimately the ultimate reality. If he created you for a reason, that's ultimately why you are here. Church, you're not an accident. You're not an accident. God wanted you here. All right. If you're valuable to him, that's ultimately what you are worth. What he says is right is absolutely right. And what he says is wrong is absolutely wrong. You may be a free moral agent with a freedom to make moral decisions, but that doesn't mean we can choose what's actually is right or wrong. That just means we're capable of choosing to be right or wrong. God makes the rules. The question is, will he enforce them? Will God ever hold us accountable for our moral decisions? The prevailing instinct among the majority seems to be that, yes, God will hold us accountable. It is as if most people instinctively know that one day they are going to have to explain all the bad things they've done. Which, of course, means that they also instinctively know that there is such a thing as moral absolutes. The point is, if God really doesn't exist, terms like justice and purpose and morality aren't, are, aren't abstract notions. God has a purpose for you. That's why he made you. He's the one who institutes morality. And in the end, he'll see that justice prevails. That's a comforting thought to some, but it is terrifying to others. So don't begin by asking, why am I here? Begin by asking, does God exist? And if he doesn't exist, there's really no point in asking why I am here. Everything is ultimately pointless. And if he does exist, you'll discover your reason for living when you discover who he is. So we begin by asking, does God exist? Now, why do I read all that and say all that? Well, I wanted to sing that song for a reason. It's a great old song. I love it. But I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice to cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. Walks with me, talks with me along life's narrow ways. And if you ask me why I know he lives, what's the next part? Because he lives within my heart. And as great as that song is, and as true as that is, and as happy as I am that he does live in my heart, if that's all I have to go on, truthfully, there are days that I don't feel like he's there. There are days I don't feel saved. There's days that I feel anything but saved. Amen? There are days that I even question 
my faith. I question God. There's days that I doubt. And if I am just hooked on a feeling, that's not going to carry you very far. Because you can't sustain life on feelings. Because feelings are all over the place. Amen? So if that's all I've got to go on, I'm in trouble. If all I've got to go on is what you tell me is true, or what mom and dad told me is true, then that's only going to carry me so far. So why do I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why do I believe in the existence of God? It needs to be more than just hooked on a feeling. Because I don't always feel like he walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow ways. Acts chapter 28 verse 22. The apostle Paul is writing and he said this. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that this is spoken against everywhere. Listen, not everybody's in favor of what you believe. In fact, there's a lot of people that speaks against Christianity. In America today, we have seen what the Bible prophesied would happen. In the last days, they will call good evil. That would be you. You're all evil people in the eyes of some people in the world. And evil, they will call good Things that God clearly condemns in his scripture is praised and promoted and stuck in your face every day on TV today. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So there's not everybody's in favor. You're spoken against. Verse 23, so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at the lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them on how he felt. Is that what that says? No, concerning Jesus Christ, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. In other words, he wasn't promoting them. Of, well, I know Jesus is lived because, listen, I feel him in my heart. It's like, okay, I'm glad you feel him, but I, that don't convince me, partner. I want to know some facts. So he took the laws of Moses and the prophets, which happened to be the only printed scripture that he had at that time. You understand there was no New Testament. Paul is making the New Testament at this time. He wrote a lot of the letters that we find in the New Testament. So he had what scripture was available to him. He used that to persuade them of why he believed. So Paul persuaded them concerning both Jesus from the law and the prophets from morning till evening. <clears throat> we can't preach that long nowadays. Everybody goes to sleep or gets up and leaves. Amen. They've got a button they push in the back at 12 o'clock. There's a trap door that opens right here. <laughs> you laugh about that, but in my dash, you guys are great. Let me just say, if I get a little long-winded, you hang in there. God bless your heart. I don't mean to, and I'm going to be done here in just a little bit, all right? But in my dad's church, they had the old pews with the hymn book things on the back. They literally picked the hymn books up and go, boom, at 12 o'clock. One guy go, uh, 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 uh. I wanted to break his arm. <laughs> I wasn't a very good pastor's son. I was in a business meeting one time. Mama was pulling on my shirt tail. I was 17 years old. I stood up and I told this guy, I said, if you open your mouth one more time, me or you one going to carry a whipping out of here. You know, all right, I wasn't always sanctified, you know. He'd have beat the snot out of me. He didn't care. I didn't care. I was going, he he's talking to my dad. You don't talk to my dad like that. Oh, anyway, I'm glad you love the Lord. Amen. Do you love me? 
You better, boy, because God will get you if you don't. <laughs> Amen. Verse 24 said, And some were persuaded by the things which spoken, and some disbelieved, so that when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet of your father, saying, verse 26, Go to this people and say, Hearing, you will hear and will not understand. And seeing, you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. Now, you have to bear this in mind. Even when you are using the undisputable, irrefutable truth of God's Word, some people still will reject it. They still will not believe it. And you lay it out without any question, this is true. And they will still reject it. So why do I believe? Well, the Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Brother, this book is true. It is true. I have dissected it. I've taken it apart. I've looked at it front to back. I've compared it. I've cross-referenced it. I've studied the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic. It's true. And I am not a scholar. I am a dum-dum. I'm going to tell you. And if I can figure this out, anybody can. This book is true. And when we rightly divide the word of truth, brother, we are approved to God. Because he said, study to show yourself approved unto him. A workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing that book right there. Now, Josh McDowell put it this way. Josh McDowell is a great apologetics. He, he goes into some of the Ivy League colleges and debates with atheists to prove God's word is true. You don't want to get into a discussion with Josh McDowell because you will lose. He is smart. Amen. He said the most convincing evidence of the Bible is its prophecy. The prophecy. Because the prophetic, the prophecies in the Bible, it, it speaks the truth of who Jesus is, what he came to do. It's going to talk about his future, who you are in Christ, who you are without Christ, and what awaits for both those who are in Christ and those who are not. I mean, when you start studying the Scripture and you see prophecy, look, nobody without God is going to be able to tell you precisely What's going to happen in the future? And it happens. In minute detail. Now, I know there's some guys that predicted some kind of ambiguous things that just didn't really happen exactly like that. I don't know if that's the right word or not, but... Astrodamus, is that his name? The guy that predicts stuff and about half of it was not even close to coming true. But I'm talking about, there was a prophet in 1 Kings chapter 13, there was a prophet that came in the altar that Jeroboam had set up to the prophets of Baal. They were worshiping and sacrificing on these altars, right? Now, now those of don't know who Jeroboam is, king, king Solomon was the first king of Israel, right? Then King David, I mean not Solomon, Saul, then King David, then his son Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. His son, Rehoboam, took two of the tribes and established the kingdom of Israel in the south. 
And Jeroboam, his general, established the kingdom of the ten tribes of Israel to the north called Judah. All right, so you got Judah, Israel. Everybody's with me? Judah is under the ruler, rulership of Jeroboam, and he set up idols to Baal, a pagan god, the god of prosperity. He's still around today. He just doesn't, we don't call him Baal, but he's still there. Amen. Everybody worship that green monster. That's nothing but the Baal worship. All right. And Esteroth, I won't go into that one. That's the fertility god that people worship. They derive names like Easter from that and everything, you know, bunny rabbits and eggs and all that kind of stuff. But don't get me on that. Anyway, they're worshiping on these idols, sacrificing on these idols. And a prophet comes along in 1 Kings 13 and said, he speaks to the altar, said, O altar, O altar, there will be a child born of the house of David. Josiah is his name. And he will tear you down and burn up on you the bones of the priests who sacrifice on you. And this shall be a sign. You shall break in half and the ashes upon you will spill onto the ground. Now who's going to take a guess like that that maybe that might come true? This is not a good guessing game. This is a man speaking under the unction of the Holy Spirit of God, something that's going to come to pass. Not only something, but who it's going to be, what his name is going to be, what he's going to do precisely. Jeroboam heard what he said and stuck out his hand and said, Arrest him, and his hand withered that he could not bring it back to himself. And he cried out to the prophet, said, Beseech God that he would heal my hand, and he did. And then I won't go into all the details. A great story. You ought to read it. 1 Kings 13. Go home and read it. 360 years will pass. And a young man of the house of David named Josiah was born who became the king. And the Bible says that he walked in the steps of his father David and did that which was right in his eyes. And he went to that altar. Let me do tell you real quick the rest of that story. That prophet, God told him, when you go to prophesy, you don't drink anything in that city. You don't eat anything in that thing in that city. The way you go in, you come out a different way. So Jeroboam said, come to my house and refresh. He said, no, God told me not to eat here or drink here. And so he left. Well, another prophet heard about it. And went to him, said, come into my house and eat. He said, no, God said, I can't eat or drink. He said, yes, but God visited me and said, I'm to get you and bring you to my house. And he did go to his house. Now, and there's a, there's a message in that. I've got to be careful. I'll start preaching another sermon. When God tells you something, I don't care how anointed Mr. Who thinks he's something special is. You don't disobey God to obey the voice of man. He disobeyed God. God told him don't do that, but he did anyway. And when he sat down at his table and ate, the prophet who had invited him began to prophesy, thus saith the Lord, because you have disobeyed me and you ate when I told you not to eat, drink when I told you not to eat, you shall leave this place and you will be killed by a lion. And he did. I mean, even that. I mean, it wasn't 360 years before this happened, but he gets up, walks out, a lion kills the guy. The prophet goes out there to the lion sitting beside the donkey and didn't even touch the donkey. He just killed the prophet. 360 years later, Josiah is ripping this altar apart and he, he said, Who's, whose graves are those? Well, those are the priests. Dig them up and burn their bones on the altar according to the word of the Lord. Church, this is not a guessing game. 
And I mean, the Bible is full of stuff like that. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Church, God, whatever he said in this book, it's going to come to pass. It's going to come to pass. One day the trumpet's going to sound, the dead in Christ is going to rise, and those that are alive and remain are going to be caught up in the air. You say, you believe we're going to fly off into heaven? Absolutely, I believe it. Why do I believe that? Sounds like nonsense to the world. Because when I read this book, he prophesied over and over and over and over and over and over again, and it came to pass exactly like the Bible said that it would. There's over 300 prophecies of Jesus and what he would do. He fulfilled most of them already in precise detail as it was prophesied. In Isaiah 64, I'm going to just wrap that up real quick. He prophesied that, that a man named Cyrus will, will rebuild, will build Israel and lay the foundation for the temple. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? When Isaiah was prophesying, Jerusalem was already built. The temple was right there. He could go up there and walk into it. But what would happen is Babylon would come in, destroy the city, destroy the temple. After Babylon, the Medes would come in. After the Medes, the Persians would come in. And a man named Cyrus would become the king of Persia. And he would say, go rebuild the city. Go rebuild the temple. It was a hundred years before Cyrus would even be born. And Isaiah called him by name. A man named Cyrus will say, rebuild Jerusalem and lay the foundation of the temple. I mean, over and over, this stuff is in Scripture, church. Real quick, listen to me. It was prophesied that Jesus would be born of the seed of the woman. Prophesied he would be born of a virgin. He would be given the throne of David. His throne would be eternal. His name would be called Emmanuel. He would have a forerunner after the spirit of Elijah. That would be John the Baptist. Okay? That he would be born in Bethlehem. That he would be worshipped by wise men that would bring him presents. Come on, church. Are you hearing this? These things are foretold and they happened. Exactly as they were foretold. That he would come out of it, that he would go into Egypt for a season. His birthplace would suffer a massacre of the infants in the city. Remember Bethlehem? They sent, King Herod sent the soldiers and killed every male child from age three and under. And it said Rachel was weeping for her children. Bethlehem was called the city, the, the, the city of, of Rachel. I'm sorry. Was it Rachel? Yes. That he would be called a Nazarene, that he would speak in parables. It was prophesied he would have a triumphant entry into the city. That was last Sunday. We just celebrated Palm Sunday. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon the colt, the fold of an ass. I mean, it was even prophesied what he would be riding when he came into the town. I mean, if God said he'd be riding a Harley Davidson, I'd be, I, they would create one. 
No, he's going to be riding one when he comes back. He is. It says he comes with many thunders. It's prophesied that he would be praised by little children's. That his miracles would not be believed. Prophesied that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That he would be rejected by his own. That he'd be a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. I mean, read. I'm not going to read it, but read Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one after his own way. And God, is, we esteem him stricken, smitten of God. Isaiah is prophesying this 700 years before Jesus was born. The book of Isaiah, the, the skeptic said it could not possibly have been written until after the birth and life of Jesus because of the detail that was in it. Until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and found a copy of the book of Isaiah. And, and when they, they translated it, only a few words were misspelled from the translations that we now have. Isn't God awesome? Come on now. God is awesome. It was prophesied that he would be forsaken by his disciples, scourged and spat upon, that the price money would be used to buy a potter's field, prophesied that he would be crucified 200 years before crucifixion was ever even thought of. King David writes in Psalms chapter 22 and describes crucifixion 200 years before they even invented it. Prophesied that he would be crucified between two thieves, that he would be offered vinegar to drink, that his, they would pierce his hands and his feet, prophesied that his garments would be parted and gambled for, that he would be surrounded and ridiculed by his enemies, that he would cry, I thirst, prophesied that he would commend his spirit to the Father, that his bones would not be broken, that he would be buried with the rich, prophesied that he would rise again. So he, I could go on, church, over 300 prophecies, and he fulfilled them. They said that the chances of those prophecies, just eight of those prophecies, eight, yeah, being fulfilled in one man is one in 100 quadrillion. It would be like this. It's, it's been described this way. If you fill the state of Texas, you know how big Texas is, right? Three feet deep in quarters. The whole state. You fly over it with one quarter painted red and flip it out the window. Then you put on a blindfold, wade through the state of Texas, and stop and reach down and pick up that quarter. That's the odds of this, these prophecies being fulfilled in one man. But he did it. Why do I believe that God exists? Why do I believe in the resurrection? Why wouldn't you? I mean, come on, what kind of proof do you need? My word. Even the feast, there's seven feasts that he commanded the children of Israel to observe. The feast of Passover, feast of unleavened bread, feast of first fruit are the first three spring feasts. Of feast of Pentecost, there's four. The feast of Passover, they actually celebrated when they came out of Egypt. The last night that they were there, he told them to kill a lamb, take the blood, put it on the lintel and on the doorpost, and when the death angel comes, he will pass over your house. That's where we get the term Passover. But all of this is a symbol. It's a prophetic imagery of what Jesus would do. He will be the sacrificial lamb, you understand. His blood applied to your heart. 
is why the death angel will pass over you. Do you see the symbolism here? Now what's interesting about that is Jesus fulfilled that. And he fulfilled that on the very day that the head of each Jewish household was cutting the throat of the lamb inside their home. He was hanging on a cross outside of the city on that same day that they're celebrating that feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was when he went into the tomb. In the Jewish Seder meal is what they're celebrating right now. They don't hunt Easter eggs. And they don't have bunny rabbits. Those are fertility images to a pagan god called Eshteroth, where we get the term Easter. It made its way into the English translation. It doesn't belong there, all right? I know it's a soapbox for me, but it irritates me a little bit. It's a matter of conscience to me. If you want honey Easter eggs, go with God, but I'm not going to do it. That's just my conscience, all right? I'm not telling you what to do, but just so you know. They hunt the unleavened bread because in the Seder meal, they have a fold. It's got three pockets in it, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they will take the matzah and they will break it. They don't even know why they're doing this. They've done it since Egypt. His body will be broken for you. And they don't put it in the first pocket or the last. They put it in the middle pocket because he was wrapped in a shroud and placed and hidden in the tomb. Then they take it and hide it. The children run around and find it and they give a reward to the one who finds it. And then they take it out. And so the, uh, just everything about the Seder meal is pointing towards the resurrection. And the bread was unleavened. So they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the third day after the Passover, they celebrate the Feast of First Fruit. That's when they go into the barley field and they cut a sheaf of harvest and they raise it up. Come on. They raise it up and wave it as an offering to the Lord because when he come out of the tomb on the third day, he said, Mary, don't touch me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go tell the disciples that I have risen and I ascend to my God and to your God. And he was lifted up as the first fruit of many brethren, a prophetic imagery that he fulfilled in minute detail. 50 days after they came out of Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai and Moses went up on the mountain and received the law. So they started celebrating the Feast of Pentecost, which simply means 50. On the day of Pentecost, after Jesus rose, he, he said, go into the city and wait and I'm going to pray to the Father and he's going to send you the Comforter. And when the Holy Spirit has come, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be witnesses unto me. And so they waited in the upper room and on the 50th day, the day that they're celebrating the Feast of Passover, the Holy Spirit came on that same day. Church, we could go on and on and on about why we know God exists. Why we know these things are true. There's three other feasts. The Feast of Trumpet. He will fulfill that when the trump of God shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise. Then the Feast of Atonement. That will be fulfilled at the Battle of Armageddon. And then the last feast will be the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Dwellings when he will come and dwell among his people. That will be fulfilled in the millennial reign, the 1,000-year reign. Are you with me? Everybody awake? 
I'm about through yelling at you, all right? Okay. <laughs> I'm not yelling at you because I'm mad. I'm excited, man. This is good stuff right here. So why do I believe in the resurrection? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4 through 8. It says, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. Not according to how I feel, but according to the Scripture. And that he was, he was seen of Cephas, that's Simon Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remains until this present but some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, and after that, he was seen of James, then all of the apostles, and at the last, he was seen of me also as one born out of due season. So he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And I told you when we started, he rose from the dead, and he beat the snot out of the devil. Amen. He did. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says this, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Because when he, I, I used to preach a sermon on Easter from the, from the cross to the throne. What happened during those three days? He, he ascended down to, to the bosom of Abraham. Because you've got to understand, all of them died looking forward to the Messiah that would come. And so when he had come, he goes down, he said, guys, here I am. <laughs> They're like, we talked about you. We saw you in a vision. Abraham's like, I saw you one time when you came to my tent. And, and the Bible says he left captivity out of that place. I used to sing a song, the little boy from the carpenter shop. Pat, Pat Champion has been trying to get me to sing that again, but I don't know if y'all can stand it or not. So I'm not going to sing it. But it talks about he was born in a stable. His mother was a virgin. He was raised in a carpenter shop. His people were slaves. Parents were poor. Friends were a lowly lot. Chances in life are very slim. He's expected to be a slave. But the people in darkness, they saw a light in him and the hope of freedom he gave. Um, and it just escaped me. All of the power in heaven and earth, God has invested in him. He's to die on a cross descend into the grave meet the devil take the keys from him so he yielded himself on the death on the cross he cried it's finished and he slumped to die in the regions of hell the devil celebrated we've destroyed the king they cried in the midst of this celebration footsteps were heard they were walking the corridors of hell as the shouting stopped and a voice rang out a voice that rang like a bell then Satan trembled as he recognized him, for he's come to deliver his own. Shut and lock the gates, he cried. Don't let him ascend to his throne. But then the gates went shut in the face of the king just to prove God's salvation untrue. But he shook hell's gates and said, lift up your eyes, because the king is coming through. Then out of the devil's prison house came a procession led by the king, shouting, Now, O grave, where is thy victory? And death, where is thy sting? Who is the king of glory? The Lord God, mighty in battle is he. Who is the king of glory? The master and host of heaven supreme. Who is the king of glory? The one that not even death could stop. 
Who is the king of glory? The little boy from the carpenter shop. Awesome song. Amen. Why don't you stand with me if you would, please? If it's true, if it's true, what about you? If it's not true, then we don't have to worry about it. Your faith is in vain. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> and those that are dead in Christ, those that have died, they, they just died in vain. You know, 207 people in Sri Lanka. We don't know if they're all Christians or not. I don't know if y'all heard it. Well, Randy announced it. There's been an attack in Sri Lanka against Christians. I mean, we mourn with the families. We do. We've had five deaths in the last month right here in our church. Well, it's connected to our church. Four right in the church. We're continuing to pray for Gail. Brother Walt Craft passed away. Jimmy Roberts passed away. And we continue to pray for Debbie. Uh, I just did a funeral for Coleman Cox. Pray for Hazel and that family. Uh, Nancy's mom, uh, Miss Rosie, died. And then we heard uh, just yesterday that uh, Linda Henshaw's mom, Thelma Taylor, passed away. So, you know, we mourn with those people. We do. But listen, we don't mourn as people, the Bible says, it has no hope. Because when people die in Christ, the resurrection of Jesus is what it's all about. Come on. If he rose from the dead, we're going to rise again too. But the question is, what happens to you after you rise? John chapter 5, verse 28 says this, For the hour is coming in which all who are in the grave will hear his voice. Not just Christians. Everyone in the grave. And come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're right, you're right for all eternity. But if you're wrong, you're wrong for all eternity. My relative has been dead for 60 years. Yeah. 59 years. 59 years. And I do the math every once in a while just to remind me if he went to hell, how long he's been there. And the seconds are still clicking off. And he will never get out of there. That should motivate us, if you're a Christian, to try to win the loss. I've told you the story about Old Black Joe. I call him Old Black Joe because I worked on a job. We had three guys named Joe. There was Joe, Joe Buck, and Black Joe. He was a black dude. The boss asked me if I'd stay over and paint one of the offices. And that's overtime. I'm like, sure. Well, Joe had missed his ride. He was just lost as he could be. I spent the whole evening with him. And I never mentioned Christ once. Joe went home that week. He's a nice guy. We talked about everything but Christ. He went home that weekend, got drunk, got in a fight with his friend. His friend shot him with a twenty-two pistol. Bullet hit his shoulder blade, bounced in his heart, and killed him. That bothers me because I've got to face him on the day of judgment. 
And he says, why didn't you tell me? I've got to face you. And I'm telling you, if you're not right with God, you need to get right with God. Because this is no joke. It's true. And one day, he will call your name. Ten out of ten people die. And the Bible says it's appointed unto every man to die and after death the judgment. And you will stand before him and he's going to say, why should I let you into my kingdom? It's got nothing to do with how you feel. It's got everything to do with how you believe. And that word believe doesn't just say, oh yeah, I know that's true. And I admit that it's true. That's, that's, the, that's the world's definition of believe. God's definition of believe is you act on what you believe. You give your life to it. The Bible said, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like, like a field that has precious treasure in it. And when you find that precious treasure, you go out and sell everything you have and buy that field. What's he talking about? You give everything to follow Jesus. He said, it's like find, looking for pearls. And when you find that one precious pearl, you sell everything that you have to buy that pearl. Jesus said it this way. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and cast it from you. It would be better for you to enter into heaven blind than to go into hell with two eyes. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. Because it would be better for you to go through life beam than to go to hell with two hands. Now, what is he talking about? He's saying, look, nobody would pluck their eye out. Nobody would cut their hand off. It's too valuable for you. But how valuable is your soul? Your soul is the most valuable thing that you have. And people sell their soul cheap every day. They sell it for the pleasures of sin. The things that God clearly has condemned, there's no question as to whether it's right or not. God is the absolute moral law. If he says it's wrong, it's wrong. And people know that it's wrong, but they would rather sell their soul for pleasure. The Bible says in the last day, people will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. So he's saying your soul is the most valuable thing that you have. Don't sell it cheap. I don't want to do any more funerals for a while. But if I have to do one, I would love to be able to say, I know where this person is today. So if you're not right with God this morning, I'm going to ask you if you would just to bow your head. We're going to close. The Bible says, call upon the Lord while he may be found. Bible says no man comes to the Father lest he be drawn by the Spirit. And I believe that right now there's somebody here and God is drawing your spirit right now. Your heart is about to beat out of your chest and you don't know what that, what that is. It's the Holy Spirit telling you, you need to get right with me now. So without delaying any further, I'm going to ask you if you're here this morning and you'd like to commit your life to Christ. Maybe you say, I've been a follower of Christ, but I am not where I used to be. And I want to rededicate my life to the Lord this morning. I'm going to ask you if you would just to raise your hand. 
and I'm going to pray for you when I close. I'm not going to embarrass you. It's between you and God. I'll see your hand. No one else will see you. I see your hand. God bless you, sir. Yes, sir, I see your hand. I see your hand. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Hallelujah. I want to recommit my life to Christ. Maybe you're here and you've never committed your life to Christ. And you say, today, I want to commit my life to the Lord. I want to live my life for Him from this day forward. I'm going to ask you if you would raise your hand. Church, I've laid out the facts and the truth the best I know how. If you're right with God, you're right for eternity. But if you're wrong, you're wrong forever. Would you commit your life to Christ today? He, don't want, he doesn't want a half-hearted commitment. He wants your whole heart. Will you commit your life to Christ today? Before I close, I'm going to give you one last opportunity. Anyone else? Raise your hand. I see your hand. God bless you, son. God bless you, son. Anybody else? I see your hand. Yes, yes, yes. I want to come down and give you a hug, but I said I wouldn't embarrass you, so I'm not going to. Hallelujah. Anybody else? Anybody else? It'll be the greatest thing you've ever done. Whew. Hallelujah. As we close, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray over each person that has made a statement of faith by just lifting their hand to you, God. This is between you and them. Lord, I pray that you just come into their heart right now, Lord. Just wash them clean, God. Transform their spirit, oh God. Make it brand new, Lord. You said that they must be born again. Father, I pray that you give them the new birth right now, Lord. Father, you said if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things pass away and behold, all things become new. Lord, change their heart, Lord. Take their heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh, Lord Jesus, according to your word. Because your word is yes and amen, it's true. Father, I thank you that you rose Jesus from the dead. I thank you, Jesus, that you sit on the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. I thank you that you didn't leave us comfortless, but you sent us the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, to guide us, to be our conviction, to be our advocate, Lord. I thank you that the Holy Spirit prays many times when we don't know how to pray with things that cannot be uttered and intercedes for us. Lord, I pray for every single person that has raised their hand, God, and maybe some here today that should have but didn't. Lord, I pray that you give them another chance, Lord. Be patient. Be merciful, God. Wait on them, Lord. Give them another chance. Now, Lord, those that have committed their life to you, Lord, I pray that you would just guide them in the days to come. Lord, we come against the enemy that would try to taint them, Lord, that would cause them doubt or maybe to question what they've done here today, Father. Lord, speak to their heart. Lord, the old song says, you walk with me and talk with me along life's narrow way. Walk with them, God. Talk with them, I pray. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen, amen. Now, Father, as we close the service today, Lord, we each go to our homes, Lord, or wherever we're going to celebrate your resurrection. Father, I pray that you bless the rest of this day. Bless every single person that's been here, Father. I pray that the word has transformed us in some good way. Now, Lord, I speak a blessing over every person that's here, over every home that's represented. God, may it be a refuge, Lord, an escape from the world, God, a place where you are honored. Lord, I pray that you would just strengthen the family, Lord. Restore, make healthy, Lord, the relationship between husbands and wives, parents and their children, siblings, one with each other. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Let me just make one last announcement. I'm going to dismiss you. May the 19th, that'll be the third Sunday in May, 
we're going to do a baptismal service right here. If you've never been baptized or maybe you recommitted your life to Christ and you'd like to be baptized again, just bring a change of clothes and show up. That's all you got to do, okay? May the 19th, immediately after service, baptismal right here. God bless you. Go with the Lord. Enjoy the celebration of the Resurrection Day. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you are blessed and encouraged by it. Central Virginia Assembly of God is located on 5052 Cross County Road, Mineral Virginia, 23117. If you would like more information about the church, visit us at centralvaag.org or call 804-514-2413. We would love to hear from you. God bless.